What do Justin Miliband, Jeremy Clarkson, and Paul Hollywood have in common? Well, I'm going to guess that in various ways, all of them have, how realistic or not, I can't judge, hopes of a better future. For Justin, that might involve a significant house move. For Jeremy, a new employer. For Paul, a continuing revival of interest in cupcakes. You see, our ideas of what a better future looks like can be very different, often opposing. But that doesn't stop us hoping. Now, hope was very much in evidence in the passage that we just had read to us. So, just as an opener... I'm going to quickly look at some of the background to the events that we heard about, Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, before we get on to the main meat of the talk. Now, his entry into Jerusalem is one of only 11 events that's recorded in all four Gospels. And there's much similarity in the, in the accounts, as you'd imagine. People from all over Israel and beyond were gathering in Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. And it's estimated, I mean, if you can imagine for a moment, that a decent proportion of Londoners who live south of the Thames converge on um, Sandown Park, then you'd be getting close to the kind of chaos and melee that must have been in evidence. Some estimates are as high as a million people gathering for that event at that time. There was a buzz, a huge buzz, as news spread that Jesus himself was approaching from the direction of Bethany. And we can assume that the crowds spilled in number onto the streets and went out to be the first to see him arrive. Now, to understand, though, why there was such a fuss, why there was such a commotion about Jesus' entry, we need to look slightly further back in John's Gospel. In fact, John devotes the whole the entire uh, of chapter, entirety of chapter 11 to an account of the prelude to the action and the impact of the raising of Lazarus, Lazarus brought back from the dead by Jesus. And we can't, I think, skip over the impact that that event must have had and the way that the word spread as a result, as it would have done today in the aftermath of such a miracle. And more than that, the Jews gathered to comfort Lazarus's sister, Mary. And they, in doing so, began to put their faith in Jesus, seeing what he'd done. You know, if you can raise Lazarus, then surely he must be God's chosen one. And the Pharisees at that time finally ran out of patience. Time to stop talking and time to start stopping Jesus, before the whole world starts to get the news about him. Now, of course, if we stand back from those events for a moment, we can see that the raising of Lazarus resonates in the rest of John's Gospel and throughout what we know now as Easter. The themes of death and resurrection, the theme of mourning turning to joy, the theme of praise interlaced with plotting. We all hope for a better future, but our hopes, as I said earlier, can be very different. So we're going to explore this story from, the, from three perspectives this morning. First, 
we're going to look at proclamation, the proclamation, the greeting of Jesus as king on his entry into Jerusalem by the crowd. Second, we're going to look at their projection, um, what it means that Jesus is king and what it doesn't mean. And if you like, some of the loaded praise that he was given at that time. And third, we're going to turn to that point of praise and consider how we can praise Jesus as king. If you'd like to follow the passage, it's a most wonderful passage and easy to look over with your eyes. It's on page 1079, and there is the usual batting order, uh, which covers roughly what I'm going to be saying. So, my first point is about proclamation. Now, there is something special, we'll all agree, I'm sure, about a big entry. You know, the announcer whooping up the crowd for the entry of a singer as he or she comes on stage, the players walking through the tunnel into the sunlight onto the pitch, or the bride being accompanied up the aisle. In all of those examples, there's expectation, a sense of darkness turning into light, the significance of one stage even of life turning into another, of endings and beginnings. All those situations are full of hope. Applause will burst out. Scarves will be waved. The congregation might turn to each other and say, doesn't she look gorgeous? Mind you, it's not always quite so smooth. I was reading a book this week by a retired Catholic priest whose wedding couple insisted on walking up the aisle to the U2 hit song, which some of you may know, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. <laughs> Can you imagine that? What a start to a marriage. Now, we're told that the crowd in Jerusalem take date palm branches, as they would have been, and wave them, shouting towards Jesus. And it must have looked fantastic, mustn't it, with these branches, often huge branches, fanning out like palms do, some of them long and slow to wave. And as they do so, they shout towards him. Now, the date palm has long been a symbol of victory or triumph. But in Israel, it also carried overtones of national pride. This was nationalism at work. And they shouted, Hosanna, save us now. Save us from those who occupy our country, the Romans, and tax us so harshly. Hosanna, save us. And they shouted also from Psalm 118, one of a group of psalms often shouted or sung in praise at times of great joy, including the Passover. They shouted, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they shouted, blessed is the king of Israel. A shout of their own invention, bringing together the idea that Jesus was king and their own nationhood. This is a crowd bestowing on Jesus every hope, expectation, and bit of praise that they can think of. And it must have been a heck of a party at least for the crowd. But you know, a week or so later, a very different proclamation would be made. At the beginning of chapter 19, John writes, Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him in the face. 
So what type of king was Jesus? Was he the king the crowd proclaimed or the king that the Romans condemned? One who made false claims for himself, who was simply deluded, or one whose claims were true? As he claimed to be king of another place, who testified to the truth and to whom everyone on the side of truth listens. Those options of who Jesus was and what type of king have been described as bad, mad, or God. And certainly neither Jesus nor the Easter story give much room for any alternatives. And if that is something that you would like to explore further now or over Easter, please have a word with Philip or I after the service. Was Jesus mad, bad, or God? As Christians, we believe that Jesus knew the bitter sweetness of the praise that he received and that that praise would turn to prosecution, that congratulation would turn to condemnation. But more than that, that Jesus' hopes for a better future were way beyond the understanding of the crowd that day. And yet, as he walked into Jerusalem, coming within his grasp. My second point on projection and the way that we project our hopes onto others. In the summer of 1982, manager Arthur Cox persuaded Kevin Keegan, then of Southampton Football Club, to play in the second division, take a dive of one division, for the perennially underperforming Newcastle United. The former two times European footballer of the year, with his late 70s perm and South Yorkshire accent, saw potential in the club and the region that had passed others by. Within minutes of the news breaking, Tyneside was thrown into a hysteria of excitement, hope and anticipation, not uncommon in that part of the world. Keegan's Geordie roots were examined and excavated through a father who'd been a Durham miner. His optimistic words about the club's future were soon quoted verbatim in the pubs and clubs of Newcastle. And his age, only 31 at the time, pointed to a good few seasons left in him. His first game on, against QPR on August the 28th, 1982, saw a sellout crowd screaming, waving black and white scarves and flags and banners proclaiming Keegan to be the Geordie Messiah, King Kevin, and Special K. His goal in the 1-0 victory stoked the fire even further, if that were possible. And for quite a few years, as player and then manager, the dream lived on before it came to an end in the corporate and financial wrangles of the Premier League. Do you see? Whether it's politicians, football managers or archbishops. As human beings, we can be masters of projection, of projecting our hopes for a better future onto others, lauding them one moment, hijacking them even for our battles, building up expectations that they will be the one we need, and decrying them when they prove to be just as human as we are. And so, an onlooker at those events on the outskirts of Jerusalem might have said something like, here's Jesus, 
Now, he really could be the one. He's brought a man back to life. He's fed a huge crowd of us from next to nothing. People are saying he's going to be the one to save Israel. He's certainly one of us. And he knows how we're oppressed by the Roman imperialists. He could trigger the biggest uprising the Romans have ever seen. He could help us take back this place. So we're no longer strangers in our own country. The fulfillment of all that we understand God to have as his purposes for our mighty nation Israel. So come on, Jesus. Hosanna. And he said, how are the lad? So what did Jesus do in response to that type of projection? Well, he wasn't going to play along with it. He found a young donkey and sat on it. And in doing so, John recalls that Jesus was fulfilling Zechariah's prophecy that the king would come on such a beast. Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9 says that the king would come gentle and riding on a donkey. So not the warrior king riding on a stallion with flashing blade and war cry, or not the showman performing miracles on the run to pump up the crowd, but gentle and riding on a young colt, a donkey, the animal symbolic of peace, a very different type of king then to the one the crowd might have hoped for, one that flew in the face of their projections. And you know, as this week that Philip took us through in the notices, this week of Jesus' passion proceeds and we aim as a church to track that through, we'll see more and more that the truth is that Jesus seeks to meet no one's expectations except God the Father's. And that that will take him to betrayal, trumped up charges, the agony of separation and painful death that our future might be better. Now, how do we, you and I, project our hopes, desires, or expectations onto others? Do we do that with Jesus even now? Do we see Jesus as attached to a particular cause, hijacked for an argument of principle? Do we see him sometimes linked to a nationalist cause, or the defense of what are commonly called Western values. Our call, you see, as a church, and that's why it's central to this church's vision, is to follow Jesus. The verb is the key. To follow. Not to lead him. But to understand him and his will for us. Not to fit him in with our interpretation of what needs to be done. Even sometimes asking ourselves, what would Jesus do? Can be a double-edged sword. Because sometimes in the modern, very complex world in which we live, we don't always know. But what we do know is what he's done. How we're guided by him. And that the path that he consistently took was to fulfill his father's hopes and not ours. And in following him in that way, 
we're challenged to hold, you and I both, what we hope for and what we need and to understand the difference. My final point on praise. Now, whatever the projections of the crowd may have been, there certainly was praise. John clearly relishes the fact that the crowd who witnessed the rising of Lazarus continued to spread the word and that more and more went out to meet with Jesus. And Luke records in his gospel that the whole crowd of disciples began to praise God joyfully in loud voices. And whilst John makes it clear that the disciples don't understand everything that's going on, there's clearly a sense that Jesus is seen as being in God's power, that he's been sent at that time for a reason, and that great fulfillments will occur. There's praise because they see God's hand at work in Jesus, ready for the task ahead. But what they don't see yet is what that task actually is. That it's not to be a victory over Roman oppressors, but a victory over sin and death. That it's not to yield salvation for the tribes of Israel, but for all who put their trust in Jesus. That it's not to build a better future, as we might define it, more freedom to do what we want, more prosperous, but a future where we're drawn in to the love of God. And we can praise God as we prepare for Easter because we sense afresh and remember at this time that Jesus came in God's power to save, overcome, and draw us in. That he was sent at that time, yes, for all history, but at this time, especially for us. That Easter isn't merely a commemoration of something that happened 2,000 years ago, but an experience of spirit that can draw us in today, whether for the first time or year after year. That's why I always found our walk of witness on Good Friday so poignant. It is an act of praise, but there are no flags waving. It's a commemoration, yes, but it's also an experience of the Spirit. There's time and opportunity to reflect on Jesus' walk, what he did and what that means for us living in Claygate now. Now, the response to all of these events of the Jewish religious elite of this very first Palm Sunday ends John's passage, the one that we heard, on a chilling note. Because they say to each other, the Pharisees, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Their patience has run out. Their approach from now on in will be direct action against Jesus. And so the story of Palm Sunday always carries for us a shadow side. For among the shouts of celebration are planted the seeds of destruction. And yet, Jesus remains in control. 
Proclamation and projection are intertwined, but the Prince of Peace on the donkey is the only one who has a grasp of events. For he knows that the crowd's hopes for a better future are not those of God the Father. For God, through Jesus, has a different plan, one much greater than our easy imaginings, more painful than the mood of celebration might be sensing, and broader in purpose than the narrow streets of a single town might contain. And that is, that God the Father would reveal his glory in Jesus, not in human terms of an upwardly mobile, all-conquering hero, but instead revealing his glory in Jesus in the divine terms of infinite compassion, a downwardly mobile king. A downwardly mobile king who chose to walk towards the cross, misunderstood and misinterpreted then and now, sharing in our pain and suffering in a ways that a God just shouldn't do. And so as we leave this service this morning, the palms that we'll be given and the palms that we'll hold are not the palms of your typical victory waved in celebration as we march from triumph to triumph, but palms that come in the shape of a cross, that sign of mercy, compassion, and divine love, God's sacrifice. For us. Amen.